listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, I'm excited to go back to the Gospel of John and We're going to be picking up in chapter 8, but I need to remind us all about why we're doing this and why was John writing this incredible book? Well, if you haven't made yourself a note, John tells you why he writes every single word of this gospel. It's in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. So let me remind us, this is why John is writing. This is why he's recording what he is recording. He says, now Jesus, he did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are written down in this book, but which are not written in this book, but these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in Him. And John believes that, and he wants you to believe it. And so we began in chapter 1, where John takes us even back before creation, before the world even began to show us Christ has always existed. And then he takes us to the forerunner, John the Baptist, and he gets the privilege of baptizing the very Son of God. Then Jesus calls those very first disciples to follow him. Then we move to chapter 2. We saw his very first miracle, that wedding at Cana. And then he turns the temple upside down because of the disgrace that they're taking of his father's home. In chapter 3, we see Nicodemus, that he, Jesus tells him these truths and his natural mind just cannot wrap around it. Chapter 4, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. The disciples can't believe what they're seeing. And then traveling back, he heals the official son from miles away. John chapter 5, he heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. But he does it on a Sabbath, and the religious leaders are losing their minds about this. Then in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds probably fifteen to 20,000 people. And then he surprises the disciples by walking on the water. Well, we're now in at the end of John chapter 7. Fredo Hernandez uh, preached part of that uh, chapter when we uh, ended in late November, and But I want you to know the setting, that it's the Feast of the Booths. And it is very important for what we're going to see today. So what is that? What did it mean? Well, it was one of the major festivals of a Jewish life, of a Jewish family. And it celebrated the harvest. At the end of the harvest, there was this massive celebration in Jerusalem. For a week, what you would do, you would sleep in a tent either outside the city or you would build one on the roof of your house. And it was to remember that wilderness wandering, that journey from Egypt to Canaan when God had his people living in tents or booths. In the morning, before you went about your day, you came to the temple. In the evening, you would come back for the reading of the Torah. You would celebrate, and then you would return to your tent or your booth. Well, in the middle of that festival, Jesus shows up. And he stands up and he begins teaching. And this completely unnerves the religious leaders. So they begin to develop a plan to take him out. 
So that is the end of chapter 7 to chapter 8. We're in the very last day of the Feast of Booths. On this day, there were two things that would happen. In the morning, you would gather and the, the high priest would lead everyone out to the pools of Shalom. He would gather water out of the pool and he would pour it into a basin. And remember that time when God provided water for them in the wilderness, even out of the rocks. But Jesus, not the high priest, he stands up. And at the end of chapter 7, this is what he says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus, he stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he's putting meaning to that celebration. And this begins to divide the people. Some believe and some refuse. But there's something else that happens at the end of that day that we're going to see in chapter 8. But I mentioned last week that this is one of the most controversial passages of all the New Testament. And it isn't because of what it said. It's actually pretty straightforward. But the controversy is should it even be in our Bibles? If you have yours, you'll see yours is either going to be in brackets or there'll be a footnote and it will kind of say something like it doesn't show up in the earlier manuscripts. And for this reason, most New Testament scholars believe this was not a part of the gospel when John wrote it. That it was added centuries later. And here's the reasons why. One, it's a beloved story. It's the woman, she's caught in adultery. But it is missing from every Greek manuscript, even before the 5th century. It doesn't show up until the 6th century. In fact, when the story, when it shows up in the late centuries, it shows up in a lot of different areas. Sometimes you'd see it in John 7.36, 7.44. Some put it at the end of chapter 21. In fact, in one manuscript, it's placed in the Gospel of Luke at the end of 21, verse 38. When you study the church fathers, there's another reason. Every church father, they omit this passage when they're commenting on John, and they move directly from 752 to 812. In fact, you would see, if you were to leave this story out, it flows beautifully from the beginning of the day, the Feast of Booths, to the end of the day, with absolutely no break. And when you study the languages, when you really get into the nerdy stuff of the Greek language, you notice something, that the style and the vocabulary is very different than the rest of John. So now we're faced with two questions. One is, does this mean our Bibles are not reliable? I mean, are there things in here that shouldn't be? Second question is, then what in the world do we do with a passage like this? So does this mean our Bibles are unreliable? I mean, the, the easy answer is absolutely not. Because think about it. If, if God can create the world out of nothing, if He can hold the entire universe together, Billions upon billions of galaxies. If he can bring a dead man back to life, if he can conquer Satan's sin and death, then he very easily can preserve his word for us today. But here's how he did it. After these books were written, it didn't take long. Hand copies, way before the printing press and the modern copier, handwritten copies 
were made. And these scribes, they took great care in copying down every single word. Well, over time, what would happen, you'll see some changes or some slight differences. But it's typically like in a verb, maybe in an adjective, but not a single difference changes the meaning of the Scriptures. And God, what He's done, He has preserved for us the word that we can trust, first of all, by just having faith in Him, but second of all, by the overall astounding evidence we have from these manuscripts. For those of you who like history, here's, here's some interesting things. I don't know if you've ever sat down and thought, you know, I want to read Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. You know, really get into some ancient literature. It was written about 58 B.C., there are 10 manuscripts that are available that you could go and see today. If you were interested in Roman history of livelies written in the time of Jesus, amazing 20 manuscripts, copies that have been kept all throughout the years. If you're really adventurous, you could go to the year 460 B.C. to read the history of, of uh, Eutychus is his name. Eight manuscripts that have been preserved and kept. Imagine, paper that can easily dissolve has been kept for thousands of years. And what do we say? There are eight copies that we have today. Well, today, 2,000 years later, you want to even take a guess at how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament? It's over 5,800 manuscripts that God has preserved for us. So not only do we have evidence for the reliability of our Bibles, we can trust that God has preserved His Word for us. Now, I believe this interaction that we're going to see today between Jesus and this woman caught in adultery, I absolutely believe it happened, even though it doesn't appear in the earlier manuscripts. So then what do we do? As students of God's Word, what do we do with these passages? Well, the first thing you do, you examine it, and you see what is the central truth of this passage. The second thing you do is you compare it to the rest of Scripture. And if it would contradict it, absolutely, I do not believe we should give it the time of day. But if we see this truth supported in other passages of Scripture, then I believe we can look at it, we can examine it, and based on what Scripture says as a whole, we can rest and trust in it. So let me set the stage, because here's where we're going to see, beginning in verse 1, is you walk through this passage, you're going to see two different groups of people. You're going to see religious leaders, and you're going to see a woman. And the two could not be any different. Everything about them is completely different. One group prides himself on following the law, on moral purity, uh, being more spiritual than everyone else. And one lady is caught in a grievous sin. What's interesting is when you study and you see and you look into this, you see they're really searching and they are striving after the exact same thing. They're simply going about it different ways and both of them are walking in complete darkness. And at the end we'll see both of these groups that they're searching and striving for the same thing that as believers we say that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And this will be true of the religious leaders, of this woman, and even us today. And here's what we will see. When we have Jesus, we have everything. And look at verse 1. In chapter 8, this is how it begins. 
But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. It is early in the morning. And he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. So after Jesus begins teaching, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Everyone wants to hear about from this man. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and placing her in the midst. So the religious leaders, somehow, some way, they catch this woman in adultery. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they clevered their eyes and didn't see what they weren't supposed to see. I believe they knew this woman's lifestyle and they waited for the opportunity. They catch her. But there's already something fishing going on. Notice that she's the only one that's brought to Jesus. The man is nowhere to be found. So they bring her to Jesus and they say, verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, of Mo- law Moses commanded us to stone each woman. That's a little bit of a misinterpretation. It was anyone caught in the act should be stoned. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so they present a very thorny question. Jesus has got to navigate this because on one hand, the law of Moses, adultery was punishable by public stoning. But since they now live under Roman rule, they had to wait for a Roman court to kind of pass judgment. The Jews, they didn't have authority to stone anyone without Rome's permission. So it seemed like the perfect setup. Jesus is either going to have to honor God's law and suffer the wrath of Rome, or he's going to side with Rome and ignore God's law. But they don't care at all about Jesus' opinion. They only want him to fail, and they want to expose him as a fraud. Well, the second thing that's so crazy about this question is they know Jesus is compassionate, especially to sinners. They're thinking he's now going to have to choose. He'll either be compassionate and he'll ignore, or he'll justify sin, or vice versa. So they bring Jesus and they think he's going to have to choose, either being compassionate or he's going to have to stand up against sin. You can't do both. Well, notice what Jesus does. Jesus bent down. And he wrote with his finger on the ground. First of all, he gets down on her level. And then he writes in the dirt. Now, we have no idea what he writes. You can go and speculate. Some people say he wrote the people's names and their sins. We have absolutely no idea. We're just not told. But it's what happens next that's important. In verse 7, he says, As they continue to ask him, he stood up and he said to him, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. So notice Jesus doesn't excuse her sin at all. In fact, he calls for punishment and judgment, but he puts one stipulation. He says, if you're innocent of all sin, if you're sinless, then pick up the stone and fire away. Please be my guest. So he's upholding God's law. What he's showing is that there is only one who can rightly judge and punish. He says only a sinless, holy judge can be the one to cast judgment. And Jesus makes a profound statement. 
Jesus is not saying the law of Moses is wrong, only that if we're really going to get serious about it, you'll find that everyone is guilty of breaking it somehow in some way. And one by one, notice what they do in verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now allow that scene to sink in. This woman is completely guilty, caught in the act. No excuse, no denying it. She is down in the dirt, guilty, full of disgrace, completely covered in shame. She knows she's broken God's law, and she is probably expecting the stones to begin flying at her head to bring her death. She braces herself, expecting the pain to begin. But then there's these long moments. They begin to pass by. She slowly begins to open her eyes, wondering what's going on. And when she does, she sees the face of Jesus and no one else. Jesus isn't standing over her to judge her. He is down on his knees beside her. And look at what happens next. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one come to condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So notice, he doesn't excuse her sin at all. He doesn't ignore it. He forgives her. He acknowledges her sin, but he states, He did not come to condemn, but to save. But I think many people misuse this word or this verse. Many people say, well, Jesus, he doesn't come to judge. But what we need to understand is one day he will. One day he will come and he will judge all sin. But if he came with that purpose on this day and any day after, no one would be able to stand because everyone would be found guilty and would suffer judgment forever in hell. But before judgment happens, God wants to offer something better. He wants to offer salvation. So with that in mind, replay that scene. Here's this woman. She's guilty. She's ashamed. He's humiliated. And it looks like her life is over. She's caught in the act. She's going to be executed. This group of religious leaders, they drag her out. They throw her at the feet of Jesus. They had witnessed what was going on. She is guilty. And they're asking for permission to stone her. But instead... Jesus covers her disgrace with his grace. And he levels the playing field by making every single person admit their own sin. So instead of condemning her, he forgives her. But there's more. Not only does he forgive her, notice what he does. He transforms her future. He does not give her a license to keep on sinning. He gives her a reason to stop. That Jesus is not saying that adultery doesn't matter or that sin is not a big deal. That is not the point at all. In fact, he is saying, you have been forgiven. You have been rescued from death. Now go and live in that forgiveness. And here's what that means for that woman and you and I today. Our sin matters and it matters greatly. In fact, it's what separates us from God. And we are all guilty 
but your sin never surprises Him. When He took our sin on Himself upon the cross, He bore judgment for every single sinful action and attitude and thought you would ever have. Your sin can't surprise Him because He's already received the punishment for it. So as Christians, we are free from all condemnation, that Jesus paid it all. And we need to rest in that grace and forgiveness and goodness. And that if you are in Christ, your sins, your failures, they don't define you. They don't have to define you anymore. Jesus says grace does. And that's the point of this story. It is all about forgiveness. And when you have it, don't commit adultery or any other sin anymore. Not because you fear stoning, but because we've met God and we have been rescued by grace. So did this story really happen? We really don't know. But it is a picture of the entire truth of the Scriptures. That this story points to the entire message of the New Testament. That Jesus came into this woman's life to provide her forgiveness through grace and to give her a different way to live, and to give her a better future. So did it happen? I don't know. But the truth is seen all throughout scriptures, so we can absolutely trust in it. But this morning, I want to go one more verse further. You know, back in chapter 7, it's the last day of the Feast of Booths. In the morning, you would have gathered in the temple and you would have followed the high priest out to the pool of Shalom. You would have watched him dip that water out of the pool to fill that basin. You would be reminded of the stories you heard about and you read about in the scriptures of how God provided life-giving water to them in the wilderness. So day after day, you're remembering God's faithfulness. And then Jesus, he stands up and he says, If anyone thirsts, Come to me and drink. If you believe in me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. So when they're celebrating, when God provided life-giving water to them in the desert, Jesus is saying, that was pointing you to me. Well, now in John chapter 8, verse 12, you'll see that it kind of goes back to that day. But it's now evening. It's the last day of the feast, and darkness is setting itself out over the land. Long before modern electricity, when the sun set, darkness soon followed. But as the darkness is overtaking the land, overtaking the city, there would be four huge golden lampstands that would be filled with oil that would be lit in the temple. The entire city would be dark, but the temple would be this glowing, massive light. The light of the temple would be seen from all around. The people at the evening, they would gather in the temple, they would dance, they would celebrate God as their guiding light. Remembering how God guided them in the wilderness by this pillar of fire at night. So Jesus then again turns to the people at the temple and he said these words. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what an incredible scene. 
that Jesus uses this moment to announce that not only is he the life-giving water that can quench any thirst, he is the light of the world, that he is the only way out of our darkness. And so here's what we see. There is a gem of hope that I think we all need to see this morning. That when you follow Jesus, when you believe, notice what happens, what you receive. First of all, it says you receive a way out of darkness. That you no longer have to live in that. But second, notice what it says you will have. You will have the light of life. And so who is that light? He tells you it's him. Meaning this, the greatest thing your faith can ever give you or bring you, it's not wealth, it's not health, it's not importance. The greatest thing faith can bring you is God's Son Himself. That if you follow Jesus, you will have Him for the light for today, tomorrow, and even the day that you will stand face to face before God. So I began by saying that these people were seeking the same thing. So whether it's this woman caught in adultery or this religious leaders, they're all seeking the same thing. They're all seeking meaning and fulfillment and purpose and, and happiness, but they're stumbling around in the darkness. The religious leaders, they thought it was by being a personal goodness or their, their superiority to keeping the law. They thought that would bring them fulfillment and happiness and acceptance, but they're just walking around, stumbling around in the darkness. The woman, she's caught in adultery. She's seeking the same thing. She's looking for meaning and fulfillment and purpose and happiness. And she's looking for it in personal, physical satisfaction and human relationships. But she's just stumbling around in the darkness. But Jesus, he's come to show everyone that you don't have to walk around and stumble around in the darkness anymore because when you have Jesus, he says you have him and when you have him, you have everything. So when we follow Jesus, no, you get him. And when you have him, you have everything you need and nothing in this life can take him from you. When you have him, you can find ultimate fulfillment and happiness and joy and acceptance and meaning and nothing can take him from you. If you see Jesus as the most important thing in your life, if you find your fulfillment and your happiness and your joy and your meaning in him, then nothing can take that away. Failure. I've seen it face to face this week in people's life. But if you're in Christ and you have him, then nothing can take him from you. There isn't a failure that is big enough because Jesus is greater than all of our sin altogether. Disappointment. Man, I've seen it this week. But disappointment can't take him from you. Because even our plans, they may not work out, but God's plan always will. Men, death. We have seen it this week. That death can't take him from you. Because Jesus has already conquered that. So I believe this woman left that day. And I believe she never forgot that moment. 
I believe she went from that place because she had never forgot that because she came face to face with Jesus. And in him, she could find everything she would ever need. Not only did he saved her, he gave her a new life to live in. So Christian, never forget, no matter what might come, failure and disappointment and death, that you have a God that is crazy about you. And he is wielding the universe to protect and to monitor you. That you no longer have to walk around and stumble around in the darkness. So I'll leave you with this question. What is going on in your life that you need his light to shine just a little bit brighter? Maybe it's been a great week. And there's so much to celebrate and to live in. Rejoice in that. But maybe there's a lot of heartbreak. Maybe there's some major changes coming. Maybe it's loss. Or maybe it's a battle that you're just afraid to admit that no one knows about. Would you reach out to him this morning? And so this is what I want to do. I'm going to pray. And then we don't do this often. We're going to actually close in a song. Maybe it's a time for you to rejoice. Maybe it's a time for you to rest in Him. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.